Hello and welcome to another episode of the Black Business Psychology Networks podcast. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Grace Mansa Awusu, that's me. And today's episode, again, is another one of my favourites. This week we have two guests again. We haven't had two guests for a long time. And both of these guests studied psychology um, and now they are, they've gone down the pathway a slightly different pathway from pure psychology, but they still use psychology. So they are called Jean Michael McIntosh and Laurie Matheson. Jean is a mental health social worker, as is Laurie Matheson, and at the same time, they have set up an, a fantastic organisation and initiative that I very much fangirl all the time. You'll be able to hear how much and how excited I get during the podcast episode. But they are, so it's the co-founder and CEO of an organisation called The Knackbox. And Laurie is the director and co-founder of The Knackbox. And I'll explain a bit more about what The Knackbox is during the episode. But essentially, it is a craft subscription box that launched in 2020. So you get a craft box every month and then you get a video tutorial of how to do that craft. So far, it's done very well, even in a very unsettling climate. At the same time, they do their day jobs. Um, they also have another person in the team as well that is also a co-founder. This episode, we talk about the skills that they've developed and how they became mental health social workers. They also did a fast track scheme called Think Ahead, which is a two year intensive course and training program for graduates of quite a lot of, quite a large variety of different disciplines for undergraduate. Jeanne also did a psychology conversion course. His, his first degree was actually in ancient history before he then did the psychology conversion course, then worked for a bit, then did the Think Ahead program. Uh, whereas Laurie did an undergraduate in psychology, toyed with the idea of going into clinical psychology, but decided that having a bit more of a hands-on approach and a practitioner focus is what he wanted. So also did the Think Ahead programme and now it is a qualified social worker, mental health social worker. So this episode is was really eye-opening for me because I didn't really know about the different areas that you could specialise in social work apart from children and adults. So it was refreshing to hear how a psychology degree can be really beneficial for a career in social work and also really beneficial for a career in or on entrepreneurship lifestyle or pathway. And both of these gentlemen are able to explain how they've stumbled upon this career path and this journey and how they also juggle some of their initiatives with their with their lives. So Please stay tuned and listen to more of these two fantastic people's career journeys and seek some inspiration about being able to think outside the box with your degree, do something a little bit more different and also get a massive amount of fulfilment out of it. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Black Business Psychology Networks podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Grace Mansa Awusu, and I'm here with two wonderful guests I'm very very excited as normal I say that every week but would you both like to introduce yourselves to the podcast please yeah um, I'm Laurie Matherton I'm a social worker by trade I'm also head of operations at the Knackbox 
And, um, my name is Jan McIntosh. I am also a social worker in my day job um, and I am uh, the chief executive of the NACBOX. Excellent. So we will be talking a bit more about both the dual roles of being social workers and entrepreneurs. And also, by the way, both of these gentlemen have the, had the fortune, I should say, of studying psychology as an undergraduate degree. Um, I won't reveal when that was, but uh, <laughs> at a, a, a London university. And you can, you can go into detail a bit more about that. But like I said, really, really ex ex excited to have you on. And so, yeah, first of all, tell us a little bit more about your day job. So um, your day jobs as social workers, what areas do you specialise in? If you can say what areas you work in location wise as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a mental health social worker in the bar London Borough of Southwark. Uh -huh. um, and yeah, I've been doing that for about a year or so um, okay. at present. I see. And Jan, um, what's your kind of area? Yeah, yeah. So um, quite similar to Laurie, I'm a mental health social worker. Um, I work for the London Borough of Brent um, and I'm in what's called an assertive outreach team. Um, mm. So we are actively going out to support people who might not already be receiving support from the local authority or mental health teams um, through the NHS in the area. Would that be classed as hard to reach? And I'm saying that in inverted commas <laughs> because the term... I have an issue with yeah hard, hard to reach groups <laughs> yeah that and people that don't engage all those kind of things yeah the, those wordings that are thrown out yeah basically yes so I'm gonna say something that's gonna sound a little bit basic here but I didn't know that you could have a mental health social worker because I mean it makes actual sense if you think about it but can you explain is this a new area or is it just me being ignorant what the difference between I don't know the differences between different types of social workers and you know how you get those specialisms yeah um yeah oh sorry yeah. <laughs> you take this one um uh yeah I mean it, it's actually been around for a while mm -hmm. um to be honest we didn't know loads about it before we got into it as well yeah I think the interesting thing about mental health social work is the, the kind of speciality that comes with it so mm -hmm. when you do social work in general you kind of train as a generalist yeah whereas our training was very much within mental health services specifically right. um so our kind of understanding of mental health is very specific all mm -hmm. our clientele we've trained with done our first couple of years in practice with has been psychosis depression ocd right. all those kind of things mm -hmm. and thinking about the multi-pronged challenges that come someone who experiences problems with their mental health and how that affects their familial relationships mm -hmm. their housing access yeah. to benefits yeah. and trust of the system in general um that those are the quite specific things that come with mental health social work in that sense that's really interesting and it does sound like that specific route and that specific training in mental health and how that affects people socially, relationship-wise, job-wise, all of this stuff, it kind of touches every part. It sounds like it's A, very rewarding, but at least very practical. So you're not necessarily in a, you're not in a ward, you're literally in the community dealing with people where they live, where they work, where they are. Yeah, yeah, that's 100% right. Um, the interesting thing is you could actually be in lots of different settings as right. well. Um, so 
you do I used to do a lot of community focused work but you can actually also be in hospital you can be in specialist clinics like it really depends but the role itself isn't always exactly the same Um, but your training kind of brings through to the specifics that you might actually do day to day um so you can do quite a lot of different things Mm. um but it also presents different challenges as a result yeah, that's true. Definitely. It might be helpful to just jump in at this point and say, um, Jan and I met on um, training on our training to become social workers. Mm-hmm. And we, we came through the, the Think Ahead um, route, which um, Think Ahead is a uh, fast-tracked um, route into social work, but they, they right. specialise on um, mental health social work. Right. And I, think it, I think it's the only fast-tracked route into mental health social work specifically. Right. Uh, I think I found a really helpful training. Excellent. And we will be talking about that a bit more because it sounds, is it similar to frontline or if I just? Yes. Yeah. It, yeah. It's practically frontline for, for mental, mental health. health. Yeah. Right. Okay. Because this kind of scheme I'm familiar with because my brother was very early on did teach first. So teach uh-huh. first is a fast track teaching program. You finish your degree, you do teach first, you're thrown into challenging schools for two mm-hmm. years, you get paid, but at the end of it, you get teaching qualification. And then I think who was after that? Then I think it was frontline that copied that. And then police now copied that. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like yours is like the mental health social work part of frontline is it the same yes. organization or different same separate okay uh, different organization um, separate but yeah um, frontline is focused on children whereas we're focused on mental health oh i see i get it so tell me about that training and we will go to psychology in a minute but like tell me about the fast track intensive mental health social work course that you both were on yeah <laughs> <laughs> It was intense. <laughs> um, it, it was definitely, you know, the feeling of getting thrown into a deep end was was, mm. was, was definitely palpable. Um, but I think it, it's, you know, I think I think Jan and I probably had had experience of working in mental health services beforehand, mm-hmm. and I think that really helped in terms of just, I guess, grounding yourself in in the system that you're being a part of. Um, but because social work is such a varied and you know it pulls on a lot of different knowledge bases from you know um, a lot based in, in psychology but you know social sciences and, yeah. and sociology um, as well and tries to kind of merge them all together but in a very in, in my opinion in a very practical sense so you use whatever tools you need to to get the result that you want to get for the person yeah. uh, whether it be like solution focused therapy or, or mm. you know, very practically just managing the bureaucracy of the system that we that we live in um that's really the, one of the hardest parts that I, I had to come across. Absolutely. I mean, I won't talk about that that much. I'll let you talk about that a bit more <laughs> than me. I'm not going to be favourable towards it. But yeah, it sounds like... So how long is the programme specifically? So you get on it, you've done your undergraduate in something, I'm assuming there's social science to get onto the course. Uh, it could be in lots of different um, subjects. They're actually really open to okay. people doing stuff. Obviously, you find that the vast majority of people have done psychology or something kind of mm-hmm. socially based. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one of their main things is to find kind of primarily empathetic people and yeah. people that would really thrive in that kind of environment, but also to offer kind of new ideas to the system as well. Um, because as a lot of us will know, there's not giant amounts of innovation coming up all the way. So they try and embed some level of 
kind of different people, different ideas coming in, especially people who've come from other industries as well. So as Laurie touched on, um, me and him were both, we weren't fresh out of university when we did Think Ahead. Um, We'd kind of worked in other areas of social care and also had different experiences prior to that. Um, But the training itself um, is a kind of two-year program. So your first year is you have kind of several placements as you go along um, and you're kind of learning on the job while doing your kind of... um, your diploma in social work okay yeah. so you have assessments all the way through that mm. and then in your second year you finish your master's with a kind of dissertation project mm-hmm. whilst working as your first year as a qualified social worker mm. so at the end of that two-year period you've kind of done two years in services yeah have a master's degree and should be at a good level of understanding of what mental health social work looks like within whatever setting you're in and have an idea of those systems as Laurie touched on as well, mm. which are the pain of all of us. So tell me a bit more about the placements that you both did. I mean, yeah, summary, whatever, but like it'll be really interesting to see because that would inform your experience of mental health social work in those different settings that you touched upon earlier, Jan, when you spoke about you could be anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um... So we're thinking you're essentially placed somewhere for two years. So you're in the same placement for a oh. two-year period um, while you're um, tr- doing the first um, first part of the, the course, or first year course, and then in second year when you're a qualified social worker, you're still there for another year right. uh, while you finish your ASYE. Um, so, yeah, I, I was based in, in Newham, um, and that was amazing. <laughs> it was an Why? amazing yeah yeah um <laughs> like Newham is, is such a diverse borough I think it's, like, it's either the most or the, the second most diverse borough in, in London yeah. or the UK maybe um yeah. and it it's yeah I, I guess it, I I now I'm further in my career I'm, I'm seeing how, how helpful it is to have been in that setting where um using interpreters was a you know second skill that you just had to learn um yeah. and it, you know in, in, my, in my current world, I think I've maybe worked with two interpreters in the last, you know, two years kind of thing, whereas mm. before it was like a weekly occurrence and it's just kind of, uh, yeah, getting used to that, that, that those considerations, um, cultural considerations that you need to be really aware of. Mm. Um, you have to practice in a slightly different way to kind of tailor your interventions to make sure that you are, you aren't being culturally in, in, insensitive to people's um, needs. Um, there was a quite high um, Muslim population and, yeah. Time of Ramadan, you have to have a, a lot of different considerations to you know um, to think about uh, in, in those times. Um, but yeah, no, I think that that was probably one of the uh, really strong points of the ThinkEd program, where you are based somewhere in, in, to, in for, for such a long time. You do get to know the systems, you do get to know the people who to talk to, um, and the way the ThinkEd program works, you're placed there with four other ThinkEd um, participants. Right. So so you're you're so you kind of create like a very strong bond, I think, to the people that you're actually placed with, um, which I think it was was you know indispensable in, in getting getting you know, in just learning because you because you're constantly talking to people, constantly networking, constantly sharing information, which yeah. is such a boost. Absolutely. And in new in the, in in Newham, uh, what kind of things were you exposed to? What kind of clients were you exposed to, and how did the kind of training fit in with that? Yeah, um, I think probably the the probably people who didn't have act, uh, recourse to public funds, so people who right. maybe didn't uh, have a right to remain in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a huge issue and problem 
where people who have quite high needs, yeah. but then they haven't got access to, let's say, let's say any benefits, for example. So yeah. they, so there's a whole bunch of problems that you get into with, with even just trying to get someone, you know, enough money to survive while you try and assess their mental health or try and support them with whatever um, you're trying to support them with. And again, homelessness was was a bit really big um, issue um, in, in Newham. And I think there was a there's big incentive to tr- try and get the homelessness homelessness numbers down. Yeah. Um, in there, and a lot of innovation was was taking place in that in that space. Mm, interesting. How about you, Jan? Like, where was your placement at Think with Think Ahead, and what kinds of clients were you working with? And, and client groups, client groups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I was based in Southwark, um, so another very diverse borough, obviously in South London. Um, and I was with South London in the Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust. Okay. Um, so I wasn't working specifically for the council. Um, Mm -hmm. So what you find is your role can be a little bit different as a result of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So as opposed to working in a team of social workers, like most who would be working in the local authority, um, I was the only social worker in my team. I see. (laughs) So you were working day to day with nurses primarily, Mm -hmm. um, as well as um, doctors, psychologists, etc. and so I guess in Southwark, one of the things that was really interesting for me, um, I was working in a psychosis service. Um, so everyone I worked with was, had a diagnosis of severe and enduring psychosis. Right. Um, so it's everything from like hearing voices right. to seeing things other people can't see and paranoia. And that was just a whole different world for me. Obviously, I never met anyone who had experienced those things before. Mm. Um, I'd worked with learning disabilities and anxiety before, but never that level. And yeah. the interaction with medication and going to wards and, you know, working with people in really like really, really unwell periods of time um, and supporting them through the processes Um, so those are the really interesting things for me and eye-openers of how you know people have to work with the system and especially if you have psychosis some of the paranoia can stop you from engaging in the system in the way that maybe the system wants you to um, partly because you might not want to use a, a phone all the internet because you're afraid of it so actually accessing universal credit all those kind of things becomes a a real big problem in itself wow that you know what that's such an eye-opener because you don't really think about that kind of stuff like what's people's experiences with even accessing the services and you know the day-to-day of this person is terrified that people are watching them so they don't want to leave the house or they're hearing voices telling them things are happening so they don't want to go out anywhere. So they're at home, they're hungry because they can't access food because they haven't got any money in their account because they can't access universal credit. And then you get people like, oh, you know, they could just go outside and get go to the bank. It's like, no, you're, you're missing the point here because how do we get people who are in dire need of help, help when they can't access the help for themselves? Because they're socially isolated, they're going through mental health crisis and even getting them to engage with the medical staff as well I'm sure you've seen a lot of um, kind of barriers to that because of past experiences that have been extremely violent and probably Mm. not appropriate to not trusting the system cultural things all sorts so just before we move on how does in terms of your intervention so Laurie you've already spoken about you know different things like 
solution focused therapy but what kind of other interventions can you use to really practically help some of the clients that client groups that you work with yeah um yeah, I think for me, I've mainly worked in, in council services. So I've been high bank council and one of the main tools, I suppose, we, we use is something called the CARE Act, okay. uh, which is a piece of legislation that kind of essentially allows you to assess people on a base of criteria to see if, uh, to basically assess what their needs are. And once yeah. you identify what people's needs are, you then can then put in a uh, care package or an intervention to help to address those needs, hopefully meet those needs to keep people as well in the community for as long as possible. Um, and so sometimes that could be uh, things like, you know, um, like a, a carer to come in and, and support them to go shopping once, yeah. once a week or whatever it may be. Um, but there's also quite a lot of innovation that is, a, that, is that I think the care kind of encourages where you can start to um, make um, care a bit more personal in terms of. Uh, giving people the ability to actually manage their own um, fine or their own finances to or say their own uh, budget for for their care. So someone may choose to hire their own care agency, or they might choose to hire a relative to to support them with with certain things that they need they need help with. Or even you know, there's actually no there's no limit if, as long as it make, makes sense to meet the care needs. Someone can have that have that done for them. Um, so I think the character is one of our, our our biggest tools that we use in the council for for helping people. Brilliant. And how about you, Jan? Like, what kinds of interventions are you? Do you more commonly use um, in your day-to-day -day work? Yeah, um, I agree with Laurie absolutely. Um, I think fundamentally, what I've learned through my time in practice is giving people time. Mm. Um, and I know that sounds pretty basic in itself, mm. but you'd be you'd be really surprised the number of people that you would expect as you would expect like don't talk to you straight away mm. don't tell you their life story immediately or have some kind of distrust of you because they met someone who was also a social worker and they didn't do the thing mm. they wanted so I found a lot of the time when I'm meeting someone for the first time mm -hmm. not having anything immediately after meet like planned because mm -hmm. if suddenly we're getting somewhere I don't want to have to leave straight away I mm -hmm. want to be able to have that time to really go into depth and I get a really good understanding about someone by how long we've managed to talk and what they got out of it and you start to build that kind of relationship from there mm -hmm. um, we talk about making care personal um, but what I really found was to some extent to do that, you really have to manage your own diary. <laughs> As yeah. I, you know, you, if you really want it to be personal, you need to know who mm. are the people that aren't awake before 12 o'clock because yeah. there's no point you going there. It's not going to happen. Um, and who are the people that, you know, are really unwell, not unwell enough to be in hospital, but so unwell that it's really hard to have a conversation. Mm. So a 45 minute visit just ain't going to cut it. Like, you know, mm. so it's, it's those kind of things that I found. I learned about how to engage with people in a different way. And as I said, it sounds really simple, but it made a massive difference to how I got things done with people. And because I, to some extent, did it on their terms and what made sense for them. I like that. And both of your examples are really just talk about, like you said, Jan, about the personalised care, um, the appropriate care for them. And the simple, everyone thinks it's simple. Oh, you just listen to people. But we all know that that's 
that doesn't come easy um I don't think we're actually taught to listen correct like properly in this society not really so you actually have to learn how to do it properly to get buy-in from the person you're trying to listen to it sounds very roundabout but it's true um and it's such a powerful tool listening and making the person feel that you've they've heard you've heard them instantly open up and you can get so much more done and like you said that time management making sure you're scheduling periods so people feel like you're not rushing them yeah. um, and which must be difficult because you also have a caseload yeah. which we'll be yeah. talking about in a minute how does that work caseload management yeah a sucker for punishment mm. <laughs> <laughs> um you know if it, it varies team to team um organization to organization um i was lucky enough in the teams that i was in to have a relatively small caseload by what does, that, what does that mean <laughs> in social work standards um so there are horror stories about people having a caseload of 35 40 mm-hmm. like it happens um yeah. my caseload was more between 15 and 20 um oh, so small uh, yeah yeah um but the reason for that specifically is because some of the clients I was working with are have higher risks and more complicated needs yeah. so actually the amount of time that you need to spend working on the situation means that you couldn't physically manage having 30 35 mm-hmm. whereas maybe someone who does have a much larger caseload what you'll tend to find is four or five people take up 70 percent of your time right and the rest you just kind of need to monitor um yeah i still think it's too many to mm. really do good solid work that you can kind of see through with everybody yeah. but that's generally kind of how it works out i'd say mm. how about yeah. you laurie i saw you like <laughs> your head your had to sit in your face when asked about caseload <laughs> flashbacks now to um, um no but i completely agree with what jan jan said um it i think it's all about complexity because mm. you can have a caseload of, of, of 10 or 15 clients but mm. if they are all very high needs in very um difficult situations then they will take up all your time um mm. i think it, it, i think i think when i've been in the best the best things i've been work, i've worked in it's mainly when you've had a really good relationship with my manager um, to kind of talk about situations that are quite difficult and working out how I can either make these high-risk people less high-risk or yeah. allow me more space to kind of work with these people to, to get the to get done what needs to be done, what needs to be done. Um, so, I, and I guess in, ter- in terms of like, for me, I, I like to focus on trying to make, make myself redundant. So yeah. as, a, as a social worker, I feel if, if we are working with someone, I'm generally trying to get them to a point where they no longer need my input anymore yeah. and trying to, you know, and that's, that's I'm constantly trying to work out, okay, so what do we need to do to get you more independent in this year, these areas, to meet, meet your goals in these areas and, you know, trying to work from a very clear framework to, to get um, people from, you know, a high risk place or in a place where they're not happy with and get them to where they, where they do want to be. Not, doesn't always work, um, mm. but when it does work, it's, it's a great feeling. It sounds really complicated, but also there's an art to it and, and you can't, there's no one size fits all. Like you said, you have to tailor it to the clients that you have. So it's complex, but I feel like, you know, you, you kind of figure out what your rhythm is throughout your career. Um, and I'm sure you feel much more comfortable now than you did when you started training. And then that will continue to grow and grow. But um, I, I wanted to ask, let's go, let's go back slightly. So 
smaller Jan and smaller Laurie skipping around, doing their A-levels. How did you get to the social, mental health social working career? What led you to there? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I did, I did um, uh, psychology, biology, and maths in in um you are a stickler for punishment oh uh, yeah, yeah yeah maths yeah. and biology oh <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, so, i mean so in, in a levels i was hell-bent on the clinical psychology right that, that, that was the one um someone said hey clinical psychology is quite quite a good thing to go into I'm like, oh, okay cool sounds, sounds good so that what kind of uh, angled myself towards mm-hmm. um and then so i went to university did um a psychology degree um and then in my mind, I was like, okay, I'm going to go the clinical psychology route. So yeah. I started volunteering at MIND yeah. uh, to get the experience for, you know, to, to, go, to do the clinical psychology um, uh, application. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I kind of, I, I from there, I, I kind of jumped from working in MIND to being a support worker in a forensic, uh, forensic supported accommodation. So people who have been in, in prison um, yeah. and um, committed some, you know, quite, quite serious offences mm-hmm. to kind of, it, in that environment kind of really changed me to the to a very practical kind of mental health kind of working that, that's yeah. where the, the, the seed of that kind of working really took hold and then from there I went and worked in um in a mental health team in, in Camden right. uh, which was a fantastic experience because I, I managed to work with clinical psychologists um OTs mental yeah. health nurses yeah. so, and social workers and I kind of had a really clear view of what everyone did in the team. And, and that was the first time I actually knew, okay, this is what you do, this is what you do, this is what you do. And I kind of thought, okay, which one do I feel most affinity to? I think that's when social work started to take more of a, uh, a key role in, in my plan or career going forward. And I, had, I was really lucky to get like, um, have a mentor that kind of supported Great. me and yeah, helped me to plan out what I wanted to do. And then told me about the ThinkEd program that just, I think just started when I, when I, when I was there. Yeah. Biden got on and that's essentially my route into social work brilliant that sounds it's so interesting like oh, I was hell-bent on clinical that's yeah. what I hear a lot um but it sounds to me like you actually did the ex- work experience to find out where your niche was what you were interested in and yeah. that allowed you to follow a slightly different route where the applied nature and the interventions with your early interventions you could do a little bit more freely than if not always but then if you were in an NHS setting in a clinical psychology space definitely yeah i mean working in, in a support accommodation where it's privately owned um the innovation there is it's like you had, if you had an idea you take it you take it to your to your manager who's who just one step down from the director so it's like okay you can get some really big changes happening in quite a short period of time like um <laughs> when, when, the, when the first joined they were, they were still, still doing like paper notes and stuff so i was like okay, well, <laughs> oh my goodness why, why, are we, why are we doing paper notes let's 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 make the system where we can share our notes around with the different houses yeah. by you know networking them and then you know i think the internet yeah we had like a digital system and like, i can call this it's great um and that also stuck with me a, a lot brilliant how about you jam what was your journey from like school to qualified social worker <laughs> um long and strange <laughs> um my mum was a careers advisor oh my goodness up. oh wow <laughs> that's nearly as bad as your mum being a teacher Poor thing. <laughs> yeah so I had no choice about <laughs> what I was thinking about doing it was always a path um so I did uh economics and business history mm-hmm. and I actually did psychology as well for a level 
um, but it wasn't in the context of wanting to be a psychologist. Right. It was understanding people to mm. then be be useful for a future legal career is what I was oh. thinking. That was the really, <laughs> um, So I knew I didn't want to do law at university um, right. because I'd have talked to some people that had and they said you could always convert afterwards, do, do something you like for university. Yeah. Um, so I did ancient history at uni. Oh, a historian. Historian. I nearly did a a history degree, but we won't talk about that (laughs) now. This is about you. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I did ancient history. It was very good. Uh, Was still set on a very corporate career, but decided I actually didn't really want to do law. Mm -hmm. Um, So did the interning banks and all that kind of stuff. Um, Decided it wasn't for me either and um thought i'd focus on people stuff so i became a recruiter for oh jeez oh, i know dear. Right? oh so my goodness enough, yeah i know close enough to the city but enough people stuff for me mm. and obviously as you can imagine after a year and a half of that i couldn't bear it anymore so it lasted I was, a long time <laughs> got to say. yeah yeah it was a decent amount like um it is a revolving door um <laughs> but uh yeah so i uh left my mum had just started a health and social care business um, and she said look I need someone to do some admin for a couple months Mm -hmm. come do some admin to figure out what you want to do fine and I stayed there for two and a half years um I absolutely loved it and kind of from what Laurie was saying um you know the ability to just do stuff you know you recognize that one of the young people you're working with didn't like the way things were being done didn't enjoy the sessions and you just changed them and you saw mm. the impact um mm. so not wanting to work for my mum forever um I decided I wanted to go back into the big world of all these things that I thought I really wanted to do and mm-hmm. I went to the department of health and worked in a policy role there um and realized I really missed being close to people um, yeah. I felt too far away um and that's kind of when I discovered clinical psychology as an option um right. so is the thing and so I went to the university to do the conversion course oh wow years. so you did the convert goodness the me conversion, yeah and then I go on to think ahead um right because it offered basically everything I wanted really mm-hmm. um the opportunity to kind of be in a kind of mental health team um, Mm -hmm. to really work alongside people to understand like what does everyone actually do Mm -hmm. you read these things in the brochures and whatnot but it doesn't really give you an insight Mm -hmm. Um, and I knew I I wanted to work with people closely and understand how just things worked in reality and social work was the best thing for that because you have to do everything you have to know how people access the world around them when you have additional needs and the support that's available and unfortunately what isn't available a lot of the time um so yeah a bit of a weird and wonderful route but we got there in the end (laughs) I think that's fantastic honestly from history to a recruitment role again I need to be careful what I say recruiters are people too but it's a very different environment that you find yourself in than wanting to do more people stuff serendipitously your mom started a new business so you were able to do that and then doing a psychology conversion course and I want to segue into that a little bit how was that because I know people that have done psychology conversion courses and mm. whoa 
an intense did you do it in a year or did, did. was it two years yeah, an intense year. year yeah yeah it was um again i i do believe i am a sucker for punishment so <laughs> i went to edinburgh which has the course where you do 10 different modules whereas i think some of the other courses you can do only four or five it's just the way edinburgh structures it so yeah. it was yeah it was hard I'm not gonna lie it was it was it was hard there was a lot going on mm. um so yeah and I was coming back and forth between London every couple of weeks and stuff so yeah it was it was a lot but um it was definitely worth it and it was a great experience but um yeah for anyone that's interested in doing it um prepare yourself it's a lot <laughs> <laughs> no I, I I saw some of them because if I had done history I would have already always gone gone the psychology route so that was my like first plan but all my history courses rejected me so I applied oh, to no. three psychology courses and three history oh, courses and my personal statement was confusing often yeah. <laughs> and so therefore yeah psychology let me in and the rest is history no pun intended but um <laughs> but um yeah so it's that sounds really interesting and both of you talk about like wanting I'm assuming that you wanted to have the practical aspects of social work rather than being the clinical psychology. I don't know, Jan, if you there's there's still designs of going that way or not. But it seems like Laurie's made up his mind just to kind of park it for a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, for me, yeah, definitely it was the practical sense that, that drew me, drew me, um, drew me to it. I, I like to be able to see change mm. <laughs> quite immediately or, or as much as much as possible. Uh-huh. And how about you, Janet? Are there, are there still designs on clinical psychology? Or I mean, every now and then you hear something a clinical psychologist says in a meeting and you're like, oh, wow, that sounds <laughs> interesting. Um, but um, not really, no. I think I'm, I'm quite happy in the kind of role um, that I've got because, as Laurie said, you, you have the kind of practical elements of actually doing it. And I just think if I was just doing the therapy in that kind of way, although the clinical psychologists I worked with were going out just as much as us. Mm. Um, but I think for me, I like big picture and moving yeah. parts and all that. So social yeah. work suits me a bit better. Yeah, hear you. Okay, so the next part I'm going to ask you, is like obviously both you at the beginning, you introduced yourself as social workers and operations director and CEO of, again, I'm going to try and stop fangirling, of this amazing... <laughs> business called the knack box so you're both here you decided to transition into social work you're loving life you have some semblance of normality and routine and then you're like oh let's start a new business so how on earth did you come up with this idea what is the knack box for the people that um don't know what that is and yet the the story so far really I'll let you take this one down because uh, <laughs> um, yeah another weird and wonderful story um so as laurie said at the beginning um we met on our social work training or as we have they call it um social work training camp um <laughs> and our third co-founder ellie as well um mm -hmm. and from very early on we were talking about how our experiences of services and how we felt a lot of the time people just get given what's available as opposed mm. to what they actually want um, and so we were thinking about how we could be innovative within services and whether we could do that from the inside or whether we need to start a business to do it mm -hmm. and so for the two years that we were on Think Ahead we were meeting after um, training sessions on the weekends mm -hmm. to kind of like plan out this idea that we had about how we could 
try and make services a bit more personable to people mm-hmm. and give people a bit more power in deciding what actually comes about as opposed to the kind of I guess sometimes quite top-down way of doing that mm-hmm. um so long story short um we originally didn't come up with the knack box right um, <laughs> <thinking> about, yeah. <laughs> our original idea was um my community capital um, which was basically an online platform that enables people to suggest ideas for social activities in their local area right um and then basically we would help create them um so for example if you went to this super cool pottery and cocktail night in east london but you live in south and there's nothing down there you'd be able to um suggest um using our platform that you want that to happen and we would go and find the venue go and find a facilitator and then sell the tickets so people are creating these activities um so we launched that in january 2020 um and we're running it and it's going really well and then covid struck (laughs) so ain't nobody want to go meet nobody (laughs) (laughs) no one's going anywhere for over a year thank you so um yeah my community capital was a short-lived uh event um but we got loads of learning out of it um and primarily it gave us a really understanding about the type of activities that people were interested in and what Mm -hmm. was in demand and uh by a clear mile craft activities were number one above everything else and there were a couple of key issues that people were finding that kind of access to craft um is either expensive or it's long like to find all the bits to find out how you do it like to start a new project or you just do the same thing every week because it takes so much time and investment to do those things and if you're going to craft workshops again they're quite pricey and also a lot of people don't want to go by themselves Mm. Um, so what we designed was a craft box where you not only get all the items you need for the activity sent to you every month and it's a new project for you to try Mm -hmm. um, but also you get access to an online workshop just like this kind of zoom call yeah. You have the ability to meet other people who have similar interests to you and you get to craft along in real time with an expert, ask them questions, get mm-hmm. feedback, show and tell, all those kind of things that you would have in a um, face-to-face experience in this kind of online world that we now live <laughs> in. Um, in zoom so yeah very simply knack is literally a monthly subscription box with an online workshop every month i like how you like very simply it's just an online subscription box (laughs) i'm just like i don't and when i um saw it i was like is this did this just happen like out of you planned it already and then covid hit but it sounds like you had a product before covid it didn't quite work out and then you pivoted so people could still access something creative to do in a lockdown world which has been very long and arduous I am bored I didn't when I say bored I have things to do but the three hours or whatever it took for me to commute every day the time where I'm not talking to people at the tea point at work there's a lot of hours to fill so especially during like you know isolated Christmas time all of that stuff having something you can just do get on with you don't even have to watch it live that's what I did with the Jesmonite one I watched it probably about two weeks after that because I just didn't have time I just think it's a fantastic idea and what has the been the the uh response to it 
not just me. So I know what, everyone knows what my response is. What does everybody else say about the Dark Bot? Yeah, that's what's kind of blown me the way most is that it's, you know, you have an idea, you put it out, you put it out in the market and you think, okay, some people might, might, might like it, some people might, might not. But then when you seem seen like people actually giving you feedback saying, oh, thank you so much. It's, it's really, you know, made my day today or I'm feeling really anxious and it's helped to make me feel, you know, um, less anxious. Some, you know, someone referenced that they had a panic attack in the morning of one of our live event shows. And, you know, by doing the, the knack box, it helped to calm her down because she was just crafting and, and focusing on, on what she was making. Yeah. And it's, it's really touching to see like, oh, it actually is making a difference to people. It is helping people to feel more connected or more creative. Um, through doing like a shared share uh, you know the shared experience with other people mm. uh, and, and that's that's one side and the other side is that um it's i think it's I, I really like that we are not not by design but we are working with a lot of independent um small creators um you know most of them have been been women who who are you know starting their own businesses so we're really happy to kind of you know, support in that in that way too and kind of help to you know i guess network and spread the, the, the message wider that you know there are a lot of people doing a lot of cool things out there yeah and we just we're just trying to get you to, to see what they're doing and, and help and learn learn new school along the way absolutely and how many knack boxes have you released now yeah all together yeah just about a thousand i think it's coming up to with oh, this new yeah with february's boxes going out it'll be about yeah. a thousand altogether yeah I'm waiting for mine waiting for mine and <laughs> um, i forgot about that i was like oh yeah i signed up for that before they sold out the second time and i was wanted to ask out of all of the projects which one i've got an idea but which one what has been the most popular so far yeah it's, it's, it's a, i think it's a, it's a race between um in our current month one february and Jesmite. Um yeah. I think there've been three that've been really, really popular: Jesmite, um, Resident, and and um, the Terrarium one that we did. Yeah, that, that yeah. Terrarium was 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 that I think that was, was our first really big project because we were slowly scaling up um, yeah. production and, and being quite conservative with our, with our numbers. But that one was when we put it up; it kind of sold out so quickly. It was like, okay. Wow. Uh, and we took us. I think it took us all by surprise. We thought it was going to be big, but not as big as it, as it was. Yeah, I think I missed the boat on the um, on, on that one, and I was like, "Oh, there's green things in there." It's not for me. It's not for me. I'll kill him. But um, I just love the idea of how it came about quite organically. Of like, let's connect people together physically when <laughs> back in the day when we were allowed to see people, and then it turned into okay, now everyone's a bit more remote. How can we bring that community spirit in? And I didn't even think about it as a kind of intervention tool actually never thought of it like that but when I was doing the Jesmonite box I was so excited I was just like I didn't even think about how it worked I'd never touched mm -hmm. Jesmonite I mean even when I was at school I did DT I did graphics for my GCSE it was okay you know it was quite fun times but um I don't think I've really I'm not very I'm not too crafty and I do things and I get bored of them quite quickly. So the idea of a knack, of the knack box is quite useful for somebody like me who wants to do something, wants to make things, and wants to try new things as well. And I just think it's a really good idea. And I was thinking, oh, I wish I had done this at DT at school <laughs> because I, it wouldn't have been a lame product project like oh, make a clock made out of acrylic. Like, yeah. 
like random stuff like that. It's it's practical oh, things gosh, that you might I want. Remember that? Did you yeah, have to do that as well? Up. Why would they yeah. making everyone make a cookout? I didn't know that. I thought that was just my DT teacher. No, I have I, think I have my clock <laughs> somewhere. My parents have still got all of our trash that we made from school, and I'm pretty sure my brother, who's like six years younger than me, did the same thing. Like, come yeah. on, let's change let's change the syllabus. But yeah, like if there was something like that, I, I think it would have really helped. And I will stop talking about this in a second. But the last thing I would say, I made some uh, more Jesmonite trays. And today my cousin commented on the pitch and she's like, that's so weird. I'm doing the same thing. I don't think she's doing it through knack, but she's kind of researching how to use resin and Jesmonite and she's going to launch her own kind of shop soon. And I was like, that is so weird. And I had no idea that's what she was doing yeah, yeah. until today. So there's a lot of crafts going on in lockdown. There's a lot of new businesses starting as well on Etsy. Um, and I think you've just captured something that's so fantastic. And um, I'll be putting all the links in the description box if anyone wants to join the subscription box, um, knack box for yourself to just get involved. Um, if you're bored during lockdown, you want a bit of connection, you want just to do something a bit different. It's a really good way of being able to try new things. Um, what are your ideas for the future of the knack box and how do you juggle this with all of your other commitments? Because I know you're both very busy people. So how does it work? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I'll, start, I'll start with the, the, the bigger vision, maybe, mm. or, or thoughts on the bigger vision. Um, and I, I think <clears throat> I think it's the first thing that Jan and Ellie and I are, are, are really... Uh, quite ambitious, I think, in, in what we where we see this going. Um, in terms of, you know, we we, we think we, we there's definitely something in what we're doing, and we want to branch out to more people so they can kind of spread the benefits out to as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. And it may be by branching out into other activities, um, not just not just craft activities, yeah, um, that people can be in, involved with. Um, you know, tapping into the whole kind of lifelong learning um, mm. idea that you know you don't just need to, you know, at school you're forced to learn, and this this is this is learning for the sake for the fun of learning from from yeah. the um, you know sense of achievement you get from that branching out into there, um, and also you know possibly touching uh, working with larger organisations, um, either make, whether it be businesses or um, or local authorities in terms of you know how we can. Mm create this kind of well-being package that isn't just isn't just a carer coming to see someone twice twice a week kind of thing how can you really get someone to to uh help get a life that is worth living you know not not, not just you know they're not, they're not just surviving they are thriving they're yeah. doing things that they really enjoy um and trying to get trying to promote that as much as possible um Absolutely. i think that's the really big picture of where we're, we're looking to go brilliant um and how about the juggle <laughs> Yeah, the juggle, the juggle is 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 interesting. Um, I think I keep coming back to the idea that you know, if you if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, you know, go with others. And mm. I'm like, it, it, it's so. Uh, it's been such a fantastic experience working with Jan and Ellie together to support each other and kind of push forward. Um, because honestly, I, I don't think I could have done this, you know, on, on my own. Because you know, it it, it does take a lot of uh, effort and uh, time and investment. Um, but because we're all kind of able to move quite fluidly between roles and, and kind of support where where we need to support, that's been crucial. Um, I've got two two children at home working as a, a second 
that work in the, effectively a second job. Mm. Uh, so time management, work-life balance is, is a constant constant battle. Um, but it's it's about being very open and honest with you know your co-founders and, and what needs to be done. And yeah. um, that's that's what I found um, most helpful. And you know they're the, generally they're fantastic and they are super supportive. So it, it, I don't <laughs> that is a other key. So find nice co-founders is probably like my <laughs> my, my top tip. It's a fair tip, I, I think. <laughs> Find people that you like to work with who are nice to you. <laughs> oh, yeah. When do you actually do the knackbot? So, like, you come... And obviously, in COVID times, you're still in the community. You don't get to work from home because you're social workers. So you're out. And then how does all this other stuff happen? Yeah. Um, <laughs> any free minute you've got basically is kind of where we're at at the moment mm. just because when we were smaller um mm. it was kind of fine you know you could look at it once a week respond to some emails and, right you know that's fine now there's something new every single day um that needs to be done and yeah we're kind of just balancing by all of us kind of almost accepting we need to be one person for knack and that's taking a third of us to yeah do that. um but yeah we we try and have a kind of strategy meeting all together once a week once every 10 days okay um and we kind of follow up on bits and pieces that each one of us has been doing yeah um, we do kind of split up the roles as well within within things so we kind of keep track of stuff um each week um, mm-hmm. Luckily, we are only sending one box a month at the moment, yeah. um, rather than one box every week. That would be um, no. a, a big struggle. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so we usually we tend to do kind of box packing um, starts about two weeks or so before the boxes need to be sent. Um, so we get all the deliveries come in and kind yeah. of make sure we have everything. There's a mad panic if something hasn't arrived, mm. um, and then actually start boxing up everything um and so you know for the terrarium which is an amazing project but mm. involved me having to keep the plants alive all <laughs> um you know <laughs> there are some um, some tricky moments with it uh but yeah we we've enjoyed every minute of it um uh, you know it's a it's a massive experience absolutely especially you're doing it all yourself it's not like I was thinking it sounds like you need staff uh (laughs) you need (laughs) someone to help you out you need some admin people maybe obviously that's probably not for now but in the future it's likely that that's you're going to need those extra pairs of hands yeah yeah we definitely will and Mm. um so at the moment we are uh, looking to open a fundraising round um, very, very soon. So we're going to be looking to raise some money. Um, and that's basically for those kind of things, um, both to bring in some additional hands to support with things day to day, allowing at least one of us to go full time, hopefully more, um, bringing in some kind of digital marketing expertise mm-hmm. and then thinking about the product in general, like what can we do to make it better? The kind of things that Laura is talking about, branching into different areas, working with different organisations. Mm-hmm. And thinking about our offering to our to our customers, you know, there are other things that they would like to see. Um, one thing I don't think we mentioned um, was the fact that each project doesn't just come from us. Um, we actively ask our members to vote on yeah. different options every single month. Yeah. Um, and so those are generated from members sending us Facebook 
message or an email right. saying, I think we should do this, this would be great. Mm. And us then putting the options to our membership. So okay. people really feel involved all the mm. way through. Um, mm-hmm. It's not just here it is, here's your project, go and do it. Like people have told us this is what we want to do. We give it to them, try and find the expertise to make it a really worthwhile experience and then let them go and have fun with it. And I think that's what people have responded really well to. Wow, now you've given me an idea. Sending sending messages into your inbox. Why don't we do this <laughs> next time? Why don't we do you that? You should. Please do. Please do. That's where we get some of our best ideas. So. Brilliant. I definitely will be in touch. And as soon as your crowdfunder fundraising um, kind of round is open, just let me know. I will definitely advertise that on the podcast in different episodes and in the description as well. I'll just update the links. So we're coming to the end and again thank you so much for this but in terms of skills from psychology that you you use in your day-to-day job as well as your entrepreneurship job what is keep keeps coming up for you and I think we've come we've kind of covered some of it um but yeah what things have you learned from your undergrad that you kind of use regularly yeah um I think one thing that really came through was uh, with with Mac, we we try to check after each each um event how people are doing, as in before, um how you know uh, how how we get a measurement of their creativity, um connectedness to other people, right, um and some other measures, and then we. Oh, it sounds that. like a nice, you know, what is it, pre and post? Yeah, it, it, yeah, exactly, and and it's it's, it's quite a, we, we are quite rigorous in 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 our you know in our testing so sounds like someone's uh, phd here thinking you <laughs> like it's it's yeah yeah we, we we really really are careful about um making sure the data we're collecting is it's robust rigorous and sound yeah um, i think that that's that is partly from us or from, certainly for me it feels like half back to my psychology degree where um you know you are doing a scientifically sound piece of research you are being aware of anything that could bias it and making sure that you can limit that as much as possible um because you know we are we don't want headline or just you know things we don't want just headline statistics we want them to be meaningful we want to actually understand yeah. what we actually are measuring what we are doing um and yeah that's i guess the scientific rigorousy of our tests is what i've really taken from my uh, psychology degree into 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 an act box in, in terms of um, in terms of mental health social work, it, it is every day. It's every day. You know, you, you're you're leaning on the principles of a lot of you know of psychology so so often, and mm. it's really helpful as a as a basis just to understand you know where people maybe where where people maybe coming from, and also to kind of um, switch what framework you're even kind of trying to understand them from, whether mm. it's a psychodynamic approach or even from you know a biological approach of saying okay, what's actually is your medication working for you? Do you need the medication? Yeah. Lots of different things um, that every day is coming into in handy. Brilliant. How about you, Jan? Uh, yeah, I was just briefly reflecting on <laughs> what Laura was saying. Um, and I was thinking, God, I used to hate porn research. I know, so right? Much. It haunts now, you. I love stats now. Stats, when they're useful for me, <laughs> it's very different. Mm. Um, so, yeah, like 100%, I, I've really enjoyed looking at the data from the things that we get from our program post workshop and questionnaires also kind of how people are using the site and all those kind of things and analyzing it um, and trying to get meaningful insights from that information and I would not 
obviously having done ancient history um never mm. been able to do that had i not done a uh, psychology conversion course so um yeah that is 100 useful within um the knack box mm. um kind of day-to-day um definitely psychological principles um are really useful in helping you kind of frame what might be going on for someone um mm-hmm. the kind of major um kind of basis i use a lot in my own thought process is from um acceptance and commitment therapy oh, um, right. i find that really useful um, yeah. so less of the idea that the person is broken or you need to fix them and all these kind of things and more so to the idea that someone might just be stuck mm. and your role is to help them to find ways to unstuck themselves and yeah. get on with their life and yeah. I think that really chimed with me um, and helps you to have more of a personal and I guess equal relationship to some mm-hmm. extent with the mm-hmm. people you're working with rather than I know everything just listen to me and everything will be okay yeah um which I never found quite useful mm. <laughs> um, both in terms of how I interact with people in general but also how other people interact with me um so yeah there's an that that kind of empowerment like you are the master of your own destiny you, you've got the tools to help like fix yourself I don't I don't have to fix you you can fix yourself yeah absolutely and also on top of that that the kind of fixes can be quite simple stuff um so things like you know what are the things that you enjoy doing and are you doing them regularly and Mm. if not why and Mm. I find that even in my own life go well I really like going for a run on a Sunday morning why don't I anymore maybe that's why I don't feel as good by Sunday evening because I haven't done the thing that I enjoy and yeah. you start to recognize these very simple things that can change your mindset a little yeah. bit and that can help you then deal with some of maybe the bigger things that are going on in your life yeah absolutely I really like that um the practical skills of data analysis and statistical analysis that every not every student I have spoken to people that actually liked those modules <laughs> very few and far between but that it's annoying because it doesn't go it doesn't go i'll be reading a news article or listening to something on the news and they'll they'll kind of quote a stat and i'm like oh what kind of sample was that then is yeah. that representative where did they get the sample from what kind of people did they find was it norm grouped and i was like i need to stop because nobody knows what i'm talking about they will think <laughs> i'm mad but that scientific rigor that evidence base to inform your own business i think is really really important as well as um being able to relate to your clients um, and using therapeutic tools, psychological tools, sociological tools in a multidisciplinary way to help people live their best lives in whatever way that, what that, whatever that looks like um, for them. So we're coming to the end, but I do have one more last question, which is a little bit left of field because I didn't put it in the list that I sent you. But um, as two black men in the UK in, who live in London at the moment, especially, um, who are working in interesting areas in terms of your social work careers, number one, number two, the entrepreneurship space as well. How, not how have you found it, but how do you navigate, again, intersectional, but yeah, what's the relationship with race, if you can say so, in such a broad question that I asked? Yeah, no, really interesting question. Absolutely. Mm. Um, yeah, there's, I guess it's kind of two, two different feelings. Mm. Um, so within entrepreneurship, 
um there was a, a stat the other day don't mm-hmm. quote me on this i have to find the article again mm-hmm. but it was something like um 0.5 percent of all investment in the uk has gone to has gone to um black founders or people of ethnic minority yeah. um and that is quite a stark wall to think about when you're like hey we're gonna get investment we're getting really big and you're like mm. oh man <laughs> and um so I think that has been as much as it can be a barrier I mm. think for us in particular we've seen it a challenge yeah. um, and the idea of there's socioeconomic reasons why that is the case um you know everything from who you grew up with through to who your family knows that maybe works at a fund like mm. where I grew up <laughs> work for an investment bank like you know so the the idea that you know, suddenly you would have all those contacts which help you to get to that stage yeah. is, a, is a major factor of it. And mm. so it's having to kind of recognise where those barriers are, but mm. also to think about the ways that you might be able to surmount them. And, you know, I think um, post-killing of George Floyd, yeah. there has been a lot more emphasis on thinking about these kind of barriers and kind of things that different groups can do to support black entrepreneurs in this case um, that I think has been obviously overdue but I think is definitely on the right track um, and we've been kind of looking at different schemes and things like that that we Brilliant. can get that kind of support from. Um, I guess in terms of a social worker, as a social worker um, obviously in London um, the client group that you tend to work with is very diverse mm-hmm. um, and what you actually find in a lot of London boroughs is the workforce is very diverse yeah. as well um, which helps you to constantly think about the kind of cultural specificity of the mm-hmm. kind of things that you're doing um, I personally really like the idea of thinking about your graces um, that mm-hmm. for me has been one of the biggest I think things I've held on to throughout my short social work career to date. Um, so the idea of what are the personal attributes of you and how they might interact with other people. So Grace is an acronym, acronym sorry. Right. Gender, sorry. Yeah. So you like your gender, your race, your age, your class, um, your education, your sexuality, how all of those things create you mm. and the interplay of that with someone else. Um, so, for example, working with someone who is from the same cultural background as you might enable you to easily build rapport and yeah. you get working with a person it's really great but can also create issues if you need to do something that that person doesn't like or they're doing mm. something that you understand from a cultural perspective so like smacking your children yeah as a person of Jamaican heritage that's pretty normal but <laughs> <laughs> in England in general not acceptable so mm. like and the way people talk about it like getting licked is like a normal thing in here no so mm. understanding that has benefits but it also can create problems when someone's like yeah but you know what I meant you know what I was doing that's really that's acceptable isn't it and you have to kind of break through that so mm. yeah you learn to be a little bit cautious about some of the things you disclose because it can create issues later mm. absolutely so that cultural 
cultural cultural awareness and being reflective in what you bring to the space and what you bring to the client and the expectations that they might have of you like oh you get me like you're like me like wh- why are you why are you doing this like do you know what I mean that stuff at the same time it does afford you kind of more access but with that comes sometimes over familiarity there's so many yeah that's that's really interesting um how about you Laurie in terms of uh entrepreneurship slash yeah <laughs> social work yeah I mean gosh yeah completely agree with Janet again like um with entrepreneurship yeah <clears throat> because <clears throat> there are so few kind of uh black home businesses that are kind of there to kind of even talk to or kind of you know it, it, or or not, not there, there are out there they are present I guess it's it's hard to find they are just so far, few and far between yeah um so I guess it's for me it's definitely kind of fighting the whole imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome kind of yeah. thing. Like, oh, should, do I do I belong here? Mm. Um, but then, yeah, I think I think as Jan said it is a challenge, and we take it as a challenge to go. Okay, well, we're in the space now. We've got this this product. We are, um, you know, going for funding. We 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 know it makes a difference. We know people want it. So therefore, what is what's stopping us? Yeah. Um, it was interesting when we were talking to, you know. Uh, we're getting some advice from from um, you know, a, a, a potential investor, let's, let's say, um, and they're kind of saying, "Oh, well, you know, how, how about you? How are your networks? Why don't you check your networks for you know people who may be able to give you, you know, X amount of thousands of, of pounds or like a million pounds?" Okay. Yeah, I was, just, I was thinking, I, I don't, I can't think of like two people that have, that have got you know enough money to even give a portion of what, what we'd be looking for. Mm. Um, so it, it, it was just a little touch on the different world that some people are are working from. But, um, but yeah, I would say that there are a lot of initiatives that are um, you can tap into. And I think um, going forward, seeing how we can work with other businesses that yeah. um, are in similar situations, are from diverse owners um, who who are, who are doing really, really fantastic work um, and to kind of yeah, build a network of, of, of companies like that and people that we can work with. Um, it's really for me um in terms of social work uh it's i think it, yeah being being a black male in mental health social work is is interesting at times um the, the time when i went to a went to a mental health ward and they didn't want to let me off because they thought i might have been a patient oh god oh god no and it was, it was, it was only for it was only for maybe like five minutes while they got a senior nurse to look at me or something i was like that's a but long time. You could have been trapped in there. Sometimes I think, like, oh, well, what if I think you can't leave? It, it was, yeah, that, that was an interesting experience and I didn't wow. really enjoy it. Um, like that. Yeah, it wasn't fun times. So I didn't enjoy <laughs> being nearly trapped in a in a ward. Kept against my will. Um, but it gives, you, it gives you a bit of an insight into some of the things that clients might be feeling um, mm. also. But, um, yeah, but, but in, in terms of, it's also, it is interesting because you know you, you can work in the most diverse teams where the frontline workers are from a range of backgrounds, very, um, very you know, from low different backgrounds. But then when you get to even up to just management level, um, it's the diversity tends to stop. And then when you get to um, you know, senior management, director level, the diversity is very hard to find. Um, yeah. And I think after George Floyd, there has been a lot of initiatives to try and um, promote um, you know, uh, the idea of. of um, people from BME backgrounds going into applying for, you know, management roles or, or this or the other, or trying to, I guess, build up the momentum, which I, which I, I appreciate, but I guess it's a lot of the feeling from the staff I'm talking to that are frontline is that some of them are quite 
disheartened. They feel that it's a short-term measure. It's a, yeah. you know, okay, George Floyd, everyone thinks about that. And and that's that's the reason. It's not it's not kind of coming from a, I don't know, a, a internal investigation that made you realise, oh, we need to become more diverse up, up, up top. It's because a internationally horrible event, event happened. Yeah. And therefore, as soon as the light, or as soon as people forget about George, George Floyd, so they will also forget about the, you know, the, the inequality in, in the uh, management structure. But I, I'm, I'm hopeful. I think people, I think that, that George Floyd is probably quite different from what we've seen before. There is a lot of momentum still, you know, mm. a couple months afterwards. And I hope that the councils or the places that do um, continue continue to try and promote diversity, you know, make, make have success. Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much for that. It is, it's definitely we've obviously seen a surge from May of last year mm. everyone realized that black people sometimes are unfairly treated like we didn't know that already and all of a sudden every black person in their workplace has become a DNI consultant which uh, mm. is another topic for another day but it I mean there's so many different ways you can think about it and there's obviously there's an opportunity but at the same time are people really taking it seriously but only time will tell um, but Last but not least, the last question, this actually is the last question now. Um, for people who are studying psychology or ancient history, but want to be psychologists, what is the one piece of advice you would give them to be able to pursue a career and also, also pursue other ideas that they might have? Maybe I'll lift it to not one. You can have up to three. That's not fair. Um. Again, I, I mean, I, I must sound like I always talk in really simple terms, but I think a lot of stuff is really simple. Um, mm. You know, really know why you want to do it. Yeah. Like, fundamentally, um, is it a career choice for mm -hmm. you? Is mm -hmm. it because you love working with people? Mm -hmm. Because just the love of people, to be perfectly honest, it isn't enough. You know, mm. it, it, I, I don't believe it's enough. Mm. There's so many other things that can stop you working with people in the way you want to yeah. actually i think you have to be interested in how things work and why they work i think in social work we talk a lot about social justice being yes. a big part you've yeah. got to live and breathe the idea that your clients might might be having their rights infringed like yes. you know you have to really champion that and i think if it I mean, I'm talking specifically for social work, but if those kind of things don't get you interested and make your blood boil when you hear that something happened when things didn't obey the law and whatever, then it might not quite be for you because mm. you have to challenge people all the time. You mm. have to challenge bad practice. You have to challenge where the law might be broken. You need to make decisions that people won't like. And mm. so... The idea of just working with people and being empathetic it, you need a little bit more and um yeah so i would say really question why you're getting into it and what you think it would look like and the best way to get a sense of that is try and find some social workers to talk to and just get a really unbiased idea about about that about the world and how it works within within services and you know if you're still keen then it's probably a job <laughs> that's a really good point about essentially what you're saying is like being an advocate for your clients you're not just there to be able to dress the window like they need you you're there for a reason you can be outraged but what does that outrage turn into you're 
being angry with them is great because obviously you're empathizing, but like, what's the outcome? How is that going to help them? So I think that's a really, really insightful um, suggestion that I hadn't actually thought about, but it's great that you said it because it's it's a way of channeling. You can be angry, but how can you channel that? And social work's clearly a career that you, that's what it's for. Like, how can you make people's lives better, essentially? Mm. Yeah. Um, I think I think going on from that, um, the, advice I, the advice I'd give is... Um, don't wait for permission. I think too too long, too much of my career, I'm definitely kind of uh, waiting for someone to say, "Oh, you can do this now." Um, mm. you can do this. And I think in starting my community capital and then the act box, it it was born out of the frustration of not being able of of you know if you have a good idea in in you know in a local authority or council wherever it may be nhs um you've got to wait you got to throw up the line and then hopefully you'll get someone to go, "Oh, that's a good idea," and you, you do it where there's so much freedom in the you know private space where you can just go okay well here's an idea i'm going to test it and i'm mm. going to test it again i'm going to keep testing it until i i get you know i can clearly show that there is a interest here yeah um, and that 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 is just yeah if you're if you have an idea then don't be afraid to put it out there to test it to you know to there's not there's nothing it doesn't often you can probably test it for less than you think just by asking people what do you think of this idea or you know you know just putting something out there mm. but there's no point in just keeping an idea in your head and, and not doing anything with it if you really if you really believe in it mm. so yeah it's it's if uh, yeah don't wait for permission test it out um see what happens see what the market says i would add to that you don't realize how far you'll get with a google form questionnaire and a cat facebook ad google form and a facebook ad and that's how we tested the the, the model right and you got 100 100 responses and that gave us enough um information to actually yeah there's something here that's a decent amount of responses because you know what it's like trying to get people to fill out <laughs> questionnaires in psychology and you've got 100 responses that's statistically significant they would yeah. say so <laughs> well done there because i know the slog um and then facebook ads instagram ads are actually very affordable ways of advertising um you don't even have to do the ads but if you wanted to get a bit more uh, traction than doing that and they are inexpensive so i think they're really good pieces of advice so i want to say thank you so much for being part of this episode i really enjoyed it um your insight and your career journeys even though they're at the beginning of your careers I just wish you all the best in all of your endeavors as you know I'm a big fan of Knackbox so I'll always be reposting resharing um, <laughs> telling everyone that likes any part of so I've got friends like these so things they're a bit crafty I'm like you like crafts do this do it now uh, so yeah I will be pushing this down everybody's throats um, but yeah well done really excited to talk to you all the best for the future and um where can people follow you as well uh, anyone that's listening or ever wants to follow you personally if you are, don't mind or the knack box yeah when can they get hold of you uh yeah so our instagram handle is at the knack box um no weird spelling just how you would spell knack um yeah. and same on facebook the knack box and our website is www.thenackbox.com brilliant Excellent. Well, thanks again. And I will be in 